And welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davis. And Derek, how's it going, man? Uh, all right. Uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, struggling to recover from the the devastation <laughs> of election night here in Virginia. Oh yeah, uh, as things, you can tell, things didn't turn out so well. My voice, I'm I'm quite upset. <laughs> Youngkin's win widely viewed as a rebuke of Mr. Biden in a state the president won just a year ago by ten points. But in exit polls, fifty four percent of Virginians now saying they disapprove of Mr. Biden's performance. Well, it seems like uh, at least the Democratic consultants have enriched themselves, so it's not all of a loss. So I'm uh, uh, happy about that. Well, I mean, it's the end of the Biden presidency, apparently. I thought he'd get at least two years, but but uh, apparently it's over now. So uh, we'll, <laughs> well move on uh, to the next thing. Got to blame us on the left. Uh, and it's also it's uh, daylight losings time coming up, right? I, what is I, what's the name of it? I always forget. But this is the week where we, for some reason, to a, a, a you know a seat to the farmers lobby, yeah. it's, we we fall back to lose some sunshine. So I'm excited about that. Really get that winter going. You know, really get that <laughs> the, the crying and the tears rolling down, uh, rolling down my face. So you know, it's been a big week. I'm I'm pretty happy about that. And yeah, um, seasonal affective disorder always always good about this time of year. Yeah, I got the little lamp um having lived in Seattle. Um so I'm I'm ready to go. <laughs> uh and before we actually get into the uh, the meat of things, uh, I just wanted to let everyone know that uh Hinge Points, a new podcast that uh myself and Matt Chrisman are hosting on various hinge points in history, uh examining crucial moments where perhaps things could have gone a different way but didn't, uh is debuting today, Friday, uh November 5th on the Chapo feed. I believe the first episode will be available to everyone, and then uh, future episodes will be available only to Grey Wolf subscribers. So if you're interested in history and things like that, and and you want to hear me and Matt talk about these things, please go over to the Chapo feed uh, to check that out. And as always, please consider subscribing to American Prestige, rating and liking us. That actually does uh, help. Now that I'm a podcaster and I see how the sausage is made, that stuff is actually really important. Um, But having said that, why don't we get into the news of the week. And, and probably the most important thing, especially given that uh, recent election results suggest that uh, climate will not be a uh, important issue for uh, Democrats or Republicans going forward, is the climate summit, which um, Mike Franzak is actually covering for Derek's newsletter, Foreign Exchanges. So Derek, what's been going on there? I, I saw Joe Biden fell asleep, but uh, anything else? Or is that really the highlight? <laughs> Uh, I think we should could all have fallen asleep. I don't think it would have mattered very much. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you know if you if if people go to to foreign exchanges and read Mike's coverage, I think it's uh, uh, the tone of it has been that a lot of people have made a lot of promises that are very similar to promises that they've made before uh, that they haven't followed through with, and there's no particular reason to expect. Uh, that they'll follow through on any of these. Um, there have been a few agreements that have emerged, and I should say, I mean, the the, uh, the summit has only just concluded the sort of big speech portion where we let all the world leaders and important dignitaries come and say things. 
and then we move on to the meetings between uh, or among the people who actually affect policy. Um, but the, there have been a few uh, agreements that have emerged. Uh, there was an agreement on uh, ending deforestation by it's over, folks. Yeah, it's over. No, no more deforestation. We're right, going to end exactly. that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, the agreement is that we're going to end deforestation by the year 2030. Uh, this is a an update of an agreement that everybody reached, or a lot of countries reached, in 2014, promising to have deforestation by 2020. Uh, oopsie, we didn't make that deadline. Oh, what a uh, shock! It's almost yeah. as if none of this will happen under capitalism. <laughs> uh, so. There's been some discussion of uh, – there was just an agreement, I think, on on uh, uh, phasing out coal, which, again, is one of these things that sort of uh, world leaders do every once in a while. They say, we're going to end our reliance on coal, and then they don't. Uh, there was another major agreement uh, on limiting methane emissions or cu- actually cutting methane emissions globally by 30% by 2030. Uh, that agreement is interesting, but it doesn't include many of the world's largest methane emitters like Australia, uh, China, oh, Russia. That's a shock. Uh, what a shock. So they're probably not going to make that goal, surprisingly enough. My entire uh, th- adult life has basically been various climate summits where people make agreements <laughs> that they just don't even come close to achieving. It's hard to even get worked up about any of these things. Like The society is just going straight into the brick wall of climate change, and, and I think nothing's going to happen. And I think that's why that um, that image of Biden is so um, important because it's really embodies the entire thing. You have these gerontocrats who are not going to be alive for a lot of this, literally falling asleep at the wheel, literally yeah. at the climate conference, falling asleep. You couldn't even ask for a perfect metaphor. If it was in a script, it would be too on the nose. Uh, so the coal agreement, uh, like the methane agreement, doesn't include some of the largest users of coal in the world, uh, like the United States. Uh, China, India, they're apparently not part of this agreement. Um, Two of the controversies, I think, are the big kind of um, issues that have hung over this conference. One is uh, the Paris Agreement, which, of course, uh, Donald Trump famously pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. And Joe Biden's like first act uh, as president was to bring the U.S. back into the Paris Agreement, which calls for uh, emissions reductions to try to keep temperature increases globally to somewhere in the 1.5 degrees Celsius range, which at this point is is pretty much a pipe dream, but it's still sort of this uh, goal. The problem with Paris, the Paris Agreement is, of course, there's no enforcement mechanism, really. And oh, there are, really? Sort of That's a, a shame. Like, idea for an enforcement mechanism, but, but it's, you know, it only, as with any other international agreement, only works to the extent that, um, you know, countries sort of voluntarily accede to it and and one of the discussions here has been can, you know how do we strengthen uh, this enforcement mechanism as far as i can tell uh, they, they haven't come up with a way to do that uh, the other controversy has been you know, also emerging from the paris agreement which called for uh, wealthy nations to park a hundred billion dollars a year uh, into a uh, fund basically which which isn't enough really i mean uh, for the scale of the problem uh but into a fund that would finance uh climate transition in the developing world sort of help uh, pay for transition to zero carbon or low carbon emitting energy sources and to to help 
kind of cushion the blow for for uh, countries, you know, for the industries that uh, are currently sort of built around uh, high emitting energy sources. Uh, th- surprisingly enough, the wealthy uh, nations have not managed to come up with a hundred billion dollars a year. Oh, I could this. never it's, have predicted that. Again, oh my another God. stunner. Um, they they hit I think breaking news on American prestige this week. Yeah, exactly. I think they hit eighty billion in twenty nineteen, and then again uh, were around eighty billion last year. Uh, so there's some talk of uh, filling that gap. And I, I, I gather Biden came to the summit promising, you know, to great fanfare, uh, eleven billion, which doesn't wow. completely fill the gap, uh, and is is somewhat. You know, I mean, when you you look at that in sort of an abstract way, it's a wow, eleven billion dollars—that's uh, a lot. And then you compare it to the you know seven hundred and fifty billion we're spending every year on the Pentagon, uh, and it's not really that much. Uh, turns out, eleven billion—not in the big scheme of things—not that much money. So uh, for some reason, the United States, uh, which could easily, without even thinking about it, really uh, fill that full gap, is is deciding not to do that and to just get a little bit further, a little bit closer to the goal, maybe. Well, that's a, all good news. You know, typical good climate news where world leaders yeah. are really getting together and, and doing what's necessary. Well, and I, I should add, I mean, this is all going on. Biden was at the summit. He made a personal appearance. He even, uh, you know, in one of his harsher uh, kind of international speeches really condemned uh, Xi Jinping of China and Vladimir Putin of Russia, uh, both of whom decided to skip the conference. She is, uh, I think, worried about coronavirus. Putin, I don't know. He just didn't feel like it. Um, <laughs> or maybe he's worried about coronavirus too. I don't know. Uh, but Biden really lambasted them for not showing up and, you know, sort of uh, argued that that uh, put their pretenses of global leadership, uh, you know, kind of in a, in a different light. But as he's doing this, as he's attending uh, the summit and giving speeches, uh, Biden is also haranguing OPEC or OPEC plus, which is the, the group that includes Russia and other major oil producers to pump more oil because gas prices are high and we need more oil and we need more Good gas. Stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, that puts, puts it into context how seriously we're taking climate change when we're sort of, trying to strong arm OPEC into into pumping more uh, oil into our veins. It seems like an irony, but the truth of the matter is you've all known, everyone knows, that the idea we're going to be able to move to renewable energy overnight and not have, and from this moment on, not use oil or not use gas or not use hydrogen is just not rational. So just all good stuff, all good climate stuff. Well, from from that happy news, why don't we go to uh, another terribly uh, depressing situation uh, with uh, what's going on in Ethiopia? Uh, Derek, why don't you give a little bit of a precis, and we'll probably do a, a longer episode on this, but for people who might not be aware, there's a lot of chaos right now. Uh, yeah, so I mean, this is, this is something that really deserves um, much more um, detail than we can give it right now, but uh, the bottom line is for a year now, it's, we're, we're at the one-year anniversary. For a year now, the Ethiopian government has been at war uh, with what had been the ruling party in uh, the Tigray region of Ethiopia, uh, the, the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Um, 
which is now outlawed technically, but still controls most of Tigray. Uh, the government, along with some regional forces from, from the Amhara region, which neighbors, uh, borders Tigray and, and, uh, you know, has a kind of historical, uh, enmity between those two peoples, uh, invaded the Tigray region, uh, t- you know, ousted the TPLF. And over the ensuing months, the TPLF kind of rallied itself and, and made a comeback. It now controls most of Tigray and has invaded a couple of neighboring regions, the Afar region and the Amhara region. Uh, just this past weekend, uh, the TPLF made what appears to be, and I, I should say all of this is sort of uh, nebulous because uh, the media environment in Ethiopia is very challenging under any circumstance, but certainly in a time of war, there are a lot of restrictions on reporting and communications. Uh, it's very hard to get hard reporting out of out of Ethiopia, uh, like confirmable reporting, I guess. Um, but over the the weekend, uh, the TPLF apparently m- captured a couple of uh, important cities that lie along the main highway that runs uh, really from both the Tigray region and uh, from Djibouti, the country of Djibouti, which happens to be Ethiopia's main seaport in addition to being its own country, uh, into the capital city, Addis uh, Ababa. Uh, and so uh, the TPLF is now in a position where if it, if it wanted to, it could uh, roll on into Addis Ababa and, and topple the government. Um, this is a, a very serious turn in the conflict, obviously. It threatens to uh, make things much bigger than they have been. Uh, the Ethiopian government is assisting is insisting, kind of contrary to all available evidence, that it has the TPLF right where it wants it, uh, that it's gotten them to overextend themselves, which is one of these things that uh, you sort of say when you're losing. Um, there, the government has issued a, a general call for people in the capital to start registering weapons and signing up for potentially for uh, kind of civil defense forces to to resist uh, a TPLF invasion. Uh, obviously, the international community has been, you know, calling for ceasefires to no avail. Uh, The United States has been pressuring, especially the Ethiopian government. It'll be interesting to see if the Biden administration changes its tune now that the TPLF seems to be uh, clearly on the ascendance. Uh, But it's been pressuring the Ethiopian government to stop uh, fighting and and call for ceasefire. Uh, There have been anecdotal reports of serious, serious human rights abuses, you you know, uh, blockades of humanitarian aid into the Tigray region, uh, massacres by forces on both sides of the conflict. Uh, Again, given the media environment, it's hard to confirm these things, but it seems pretty clear that there's uh, sort of massive human suffering going on as a result of this conflict. And, uh, you know, it's, it's at at a stage now where it could be entering uh, a new phase that, that would be, I think, uh, even worse than, than what we've already seen. And this could, of course, have devastating effects for the entire Horn of Africa and uh, the region uh, surrounding it. You could you could have spillover into Kenya, Somalia, uh, as you said, Djibouti and Eritrea, which, of course, is a longstanding history with um, Ethiopia. Yeah, Eritrea has already been involved, really. I mean, during the the early phase of the war, when uh, the TPLF was on its back foot, the the Eritrean military had invaded that region and was working with the Ethiopian uh, military. And and in fact, Eritrean forces have been accused of some of the the largest and worst kind of atrocities, uh, at least coming out of that first phase of the war. They seem to have been uh, driven out of Tigray, uh, you know, in in the wake of the TPLF's resurgence, but uh, yeah, certainly Eritrea, Sudan. I mean, there've been border crises 
uh, already kind of related to this conflict uh, between uh, Ethiopia and Sudan. So there, there's a lot of potential for, for regional spillover. So staying in the region of Northeast Africa and speaking of Sudan, uh, what's the update on what's going um, on in Sudan right now? There's not a whole lot to say here, but but it is worth updating uh, since we you know, talked about this last week, uh, last week's episode. The junta, the, the Sudanese, Sudanese military, which took power uh, or kind of took full power in the transitional government last week in a, a coup against its civilian counterparts. Uh, the the leader of the junta, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, um, has said had said last week that he wanted to have uh, a new civilian cabinet uh, technocratic uh, quote unquote cabinet uh, in place by the end of this week there are some signs that um, the ousted prime minister Abdullah Hamdok could return in that role he's got some demands that basically uh, amount to rolling back the coup uh, but there are negotiations going on, I think, being brokered by the UN's uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopia, the UN Sudan envoy, excuse me, uh, to maybe bring him back at the at the head of a new cabinet. I don't know how how many of the members would be, you know, people brought back from the old government that was toppled or or would be brand new. Uh, so that's that seems to be where things are going. Um, it's not a done deal yet and and may uh, fall apart, but that would be an interesting development. Um, you know, in a sense, it would be kind of unwinding the coup. On the other hand, uh, you know, the Sudanese military would have, in essence, laid down a marker, I think, uh, for what it's prepared to do. So it's hard to know who would emerge from that in a, in a stronger or weaker position. I think you could make the argument that Hamdok, having survived all of this and, and kind of uh, returned gloriously to his former position uh, would be more powerful as a result of this. On the other hand, uh, you know, the Sudanese military will have kind of put its foot down and, and uh, really demonstrated how easily it could take over uh, the functioning of the state. It's only been sort of due to um, internal protests and external opposition that that it's sort of uh, waffling a little bit. But I, I think, um, you know, again, I, I don't know what the dynamic will be, uh, but if it, it does, this does result in sort of a basically a return to the status quo pre-coup, that, that's going to be an interesting uh, thing to follow. Yeah, the military has essentially declared itself the political. The, the buck stops with them. And uh, before we exactly. move on to our final subject, a question that I had is obviously uh, Sudan and Ethiopia uh, border each other. And obviously there are also local internal dynamics to explain what's going on. But is there any broader reason for why both of these countries are in such um, – disarray right now um or is it just happenstance that they happen to border each other um I, yeah i don't i don't think so i mean somebody who's more of a regional expert might be able to tease out uh, a, a broader explanation but I, I these are um pretty locally defined situations i mean in sudan obviously as we talked about last time last week uh it, it kind of comes out of the uh protest and the coup that removed omar al-bashir in, in 2019 and the tensions that have existed between uh the military and the civilian government as the country kind of gets closer to what is supposed to be a transition after uh years decades really of, of basically military rule to a a civilian 
Russian-led government. Um, Ethiopia's situation is um, a little runs a little further back in, in a sense in that it's it's rooted in the TPLF's loss of power. I mean, the TPLF used to basically uh, rule Ethiopia through its alliances with uh, various other regional parties. And, and um, the, the current prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, who became prime minister in 2018, uh, as the result of protests in uh, the Oromo region among the Oromo people, um, really undercut the TPLF's role uh, in the coalition and essentially dissolved the coalition uh, after he, you know, sort of had some time to consolidate his position uh, and kind of the, and the TPLF rejected all of this and kind of uh, retreated to regional politics. But, but the, the dynamic there, I think is, um, you know, also kind of very much rooted in the history of, of uh, Ethiopia and its politics. Well, let's stay um, in the region for our final topic, which is um, Israel and the budget crisis uh, that has been uh, basically uh, dominating Israeli domestic politics for years at this point, three three years, I believe. Uh, yeah, this the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, uh, basically passed uh, its first state budget in three years um, on Thursday, which is... Uh, interesting for a couple of reasons. First, obviously, because they haven't passed one in three years, uh, which has basically been due to the, the political dysfunction, the fact that Israel has been unable to form anything more than an interim government in all that time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of interim governments keep collapsing and they keep having to go to, to uh, new elections. This is uh, the current government, which uh, emerged out of... Um, the most recent snap election earlier this year and is basically a cabinet of people who don't like Benjamin Netanyahu, the former prime minister of Israel. Uh, they, they assembled this government essentially to oust him from the, the uh, prime minister position. And, and there have been questions um, ever since about just how tenuous this coalition is because it's very broad. It includes everybody from, you know, what I think you could consider the Israeli religious right in, in the form of uh, the new prime minister, the current prime minister, Naftali Bennett, um, all the way to kind of the, the left wing, such as it is, of Israeli politics and even one Arab party, one Palestinian party. Uh, so it's a very incoherent coalition that, uh, again, really uh, exists just to kind of keep Netanyahu from from uh, regaining power to get rid of him, uh, the the passage of the budget means that uh, the chances of the coalition falling apart and Israel having to ha hold another snap election, which would potentially give Netanyahu a pathway back to power, uh, are now pretty small. Which is uh, you know is interesting. Netanyahu is of course uh, under indictment for corruption charges. Uh, the game here seems to be to kind of wait out those corruption charges and uh, eventually get to the point where he's legally unable to to resume the prime ministership. And then maybe you could, you know, talk about uh, collapsing the coalition and forming a, a more coherent government. Um, 
but you know the 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 question of whether it could la- it, the, this coalition could last long enough to achieve that uh, has been a big deal, and this suggests that that it can in fact last that long. Um, it come this comes the budget passage comes after uh, you know there's been a few co- uh, controversies of late uh, over uh, the designation of several Palestinian charities as terrorist organizations, and uh, the government's decision to greenlight some uh, you know thousands of new settlement constructions. Uh, in the West Bank, which doesn't sit well with the Israeli left, doesn't sit well certainly with uh, Palestinian parties. So it's it's there have been some signs of fracturing, uh, but the budget uh, passage seems to to suggest that they're going to hold it together. So does, is that meaningful in terms of Israel's international politics, or is, are we just going to see more of the same? Um, I mean, we've seen mostly more of the same. I mean, Bennett is, uh, if anything, his politics are further right than Netanyahu. He's constrained uh, to some degree by the the nature of the coalition and by the fact that there's a government now in uh, Washington that at least rhetorically opposes, let's say, like massive settlement construction. Um, but I think you'll you'll see basically a continuation of what we've seen to this point, which is sort of reined in a bit um you know we're not building tens of thousands of settlements we're building thousands of settlements we're not doing uh you know we're not sort of uh, launching another massive war on gaza but we are occasionally doing uh you know clean up airstrikes or, or that sort of thing uh, there have been actually to, to be fair there haven't been uh, even those kinds of exchanges of late and, and the israelis have done a few things to kind of uh try to ease conditions or improved conditions in Gaza a bit. Which So this is, uh, I think, the kind of thing that, that you'll continue to see. Half measures, you're certainly not going to see any effort to uh, revive diplomacy between Israel and the Palestinians. There's no uh, there's no openness to that on the part of uh, uh, this cabinet. So, uh, yeah, I think you'll see marginally better than Netanyahu, but not, not um, you know, terribly uh, different. Well, thank you, Derek, uh, and everyone. Uh, we hope you enjoy our interview with Sarah Miller Davenport about the uh, history of Hawaii. See you next week. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the weekly American Prestige interview. Uh, I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison. Uh, and we're very excited to have my old friend and colleague, someone I've known for uh, at least a decade, if, if not longer at this point, Sarah Miller Davenport. And Sarah is the senior lecturer um, at the University of Sheffield and author of Gateway State, Hawaii and the Cultural Transformation of American Empire. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, uh, happy to have you. And one of the things, one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on is that we haven't really talked much, um, about Hawaii and Hawaii is of course, uh, you know, you'll be shocked to learn. We haven't talked much about Hawaii, but Hawaii is of course a very important place, um, in the American imagination and the history of, uh, the American empire. Um, and particularly, you know, one of our most recent states is it the most recent one or is it that Alaska? It is the most recent. It, it, 59 we can get into some of the reasons for why that is yeah but it, it came it should have been before alaska but it ended up coming after alaska yeah maybe that's why i'm a, a bit confused yeah. but yeah our most recent state um and uh you know a, a very important place so why don't we just start at the beginning you know where is hawaii situated uh when was it populated um when did the u.s first get there you know just the basic basics 
so Hawaii is, um, in the middle of the Pacific. It is, I've heard, I mean, someone might dispute this. Um, it's the most remote populated place on earth. Um, so sort of smack in between the U S and Asia and, Basically, you know, it was, oh gosh, see, this is where, this is where the deep history of Hawaii is going to get me. I mean, it was, it was populated many thousands of years ago. Um, <laughs> I believe, you know, the migratory, uh, or, you know, the, the sort of assumption was that people, um, migrated from the Philippines, um, uh, you know, to these various islands and what's now. It's part of the Polynesian Polynesia. cultural yeah, space. Yeah. 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 Um, and, but, you know, so, and it remained a very isolated place for thousands of years, basically, uh, until, you know, or, I mean, you know, there's, there's some dispute on sort of the, the connections between these various islands over the course of that period. Um, but it, the first Western contact was with, uh, the British Captain James Cook in 1778. Um, and the, visit of the British to Hawaii in, in 1778 kind of set off um, a series of battles for control within the Hawaiian islands. Um, you know, for one thing, they introduced, uh, the British introduced gunpowder to, uh, the Hawaiian islands. Um, and that led to the unification. Yes. What a gift. (laughs) That led to the the unification of the Hawaiian islands under King Kamehameha. Um, and that's sort of the beginning of the kingdom of Hawaii in the, you know, late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, American, then you have a period where, you know, now that people know about Hawaii, you have, uh, whalers stopping in Hawaii. You have, um, there's a big sandalwood trade in Hawaii. American missionaries arrive in 1820. Um, and that's, that's really the beginning of U.S. involvement, uh, in the Hawaiian islands. The, the missionaries establish, um, you know, essentially a settler colony, um, or an informal settler colony. Cause they're not at this point, um, you know, kind of official representatives of the United States. Um, they introduce all kinds of new, sorry, there's some noise outside. Oh no, don't worry. This is, we're punk, we're <laughs> DIY. But one of the things that I wanted to ask, because we actually surprisingly, now that I think about it, haven't really talked about missionaries. Mm-hmm. So like, what is the missionary goal, particularly in the early 19th century, basically just after American independence, what do they think they're doing in a place like Hawaii in the Pacific? Maybe we could just talk about that for a second. And how does that lead to further American involvement in the uh, space? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's complicated. You know, the missionaries who arrive um, in the early 19th century in Hawaii don't necessarily see themselves as agents of Americanization. They see themselves as agents of, you know, Christianity, civilization, um, and, you know, seek to convert the native Hawaiian population, um, in the process, you know, however, right. They, they do introduce all kinds of, you know, Western norms. Um, you know, so for example, you know, the missionaries are, are outraged by the way Hawaiians dress and think they're very immodest. Um, they don't like hula dancing. Um, you know, they're all, so, you know, and over the course of a few decades, they also, they also bring in, um, private property laws. These, you know, these missionaries kind of establish themselves, um, as, uh, they kind of insinuate themselves into the, uh, the government of the Hawaiian kingdom, 
um, you know, and become kind of advisors to the king and all this stuff. And so we're able to- How do they do that? This is something I've always like, what are they offering that allows someone to be like, okay, now you could like help us run the government? Um, Because this is always, this is really Mm -hmm. not my period. Um, But I was always curious about how do they insinuate themselves? What are they offering? Why does uh, someone like Kamehameha want, you know, American missionaries in uh, his government? You know, I mean, this is not, this is arguably not my period either, exactly. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of what's going on in Hawaii at this point is, you know, they're a very new nation, right? Um, and they, they feel very vulnerable, right? To, you know, kind of, you know, I think at this point they feel more vulnerable perhaps to like European colonialism than US colonialism. Um, and they're trying to establish their own legitimacy, you know, as a kind of, you know, nation or king, you know, among nations, kingdom among, you know, you know, kingdoms and nation states, right? So I think they see these, and that's one of the things that these Americans are offering, right? Is like, well, we'll tell you, you know, if you want, if you want legitimacy within the kind of Western world, right? And you want to stave off, um, you know, kind of, a colonial invasion, right? Here's how you establish your legitimacy, right? Is through Western law and norms. Cool. So how does that relationship develop over the course of the 19th century? What is the post-missionary group of Americans that come and what do they want in Hawaii? So I'll tell you, like my, my comps remembering is always, you know, the, the, the gateway to the Pacific. That's why you call it, you know, gateway state, gateway to Asia. Uh, and so my understanding is that they basically want to use it as a jumping off point, you know, refueling station, Mm -hmm. a a jumping off point to the big bounty of trade in, in India and China. Is that essentially it? Or is there something in Hawaii? Hawaii that they want uh, itself? Is there something that they believe they can exploit? You know, I mean, I think they're obviously, there are different kind of interest groups here who have, you know, different goals in Hawaii. You know, I do think, I mean, I've I've studied missionaries in other contexts. um, And, you know, I do think that, that the missionaries who went to Hawaii did see themselves as kind of you know, agents of Christ, right? Um, You know, however misguided that was, however much they did end up abetting colonialism. Um, but, you know, yeah, you have, uh, you know, the U.S. government, you know, once once these missionaries, you know, establish themselves here, are suddenly interested in Hawaii as well, right, as, as a potential naval base, as a refueling station. Um, the U.S. signs a reciprocity treaty with the Hawaiian Kingdom in 1875 for use of Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, you have, you know, all kinds of merchants, right? You have people involved in the China trade, right? Who are, who are interested in using Hawaii as a kind of, um, waylay station. And at the same time, right, along with the missionaries, um, and the, and the descendants of these missionaries, right? They, of course, you know, they establish private property laws in the kingdom. Um, and they start buying up all this land, um, you know, to set up sugar plantations, right? So that becomes the, over the, course of the 19th century, that becomes the major industry in Hawaii. And that kind of follows on from the the sort of initial missionary kind of beachhead, right, is their descendants establishing themselves, you know, often marrying into kind of the, uh, the Hawaiian elite, the yeah. indigenous so, Hawaiian yeah. elite. Yeah. So the next big moment, of course, is 1898. So what happens in 1898? Well, the next big moment is 1893. Okay, so the next big moment is 1893, exactly right. what I was going to say. So yeah. what happens in 1893? So that's when this group of American uh, settlers in Hawaii overthrows the Hawaiian kingdom. Um, and the monarch at the time is Queen Liliokalani. Um, 
at that time, they, they seek to, to have the U.S. annexed to Hawaii in 1893. Um, they're unsuccessful, right? This is also, you know, and one of the things that, that I think is, is key to this story. And I would say key to kind of U.S. colonialism and U.S. imperialism more generally, right? Is there's, there is always a, a fairly, you know, um, popular strain of anti-imperialism in the United States. Uh, and so at that time in 1893, you have a lot of opposition to annexing Hawaii. Uh, only is that for years. racial reasons? Is that, you do know, people not want to like a mix of reasons? Right. Um, but I think it, it's certainly racism. I think it also, you know, really kind of undermines and threatens, right. The kind of idea of the United States as a Republic, right. However, <laughs> however much of a fiction that was right. Um, that the U S was not, you know, but a colonizer, right? Um, we know it was a colonizer. It colonized North America, right? But I think that there was this this idea that once you kind of go overseas, right, um, and you colonize, uh, you know, a populated area that has, you know, a majority non-white population, um, that that's that's a kind of bridge too far, as it were. Um, but you know, by 1898, right, the mood had shifted quite a bit because of the <laughs> yeah. Spanish-American War, right? I mean, and what's interesting. You know, I mean, so Hawaii was not part, you know, Hawaii was never part of Spain, right? But it becomes a U.S. colony essentially, right? You know, in this kind of high imperial moment, right? In 1898, during the middle of the Spanish-American War. So what does annexation mean for Hawaii? And how does that, you know, shape what's going to happen when it becomes um, a state uh, in the 1950s? So Hawaii is annexed much like, um, you know, the other territories that go on to become states in North America, Hawaii is annexed as an incorporated territory, um, which had, which is how all territories up until that point had been annexed, right? It meant that they, it, it was explicitly meant to become a state. Uh, but what's interesting is that the other colonies uh, annexed, you know, or that become, you know, part of the, the U S because of the Spanish American war in 1898, they're, they're incorporated as unincorporated territories, right. Which, um, you know, and, and the big difference really is that they're not supposed to become states if they're unincorporated territories, whereas Hawaii is, uh, kind of allowed to be an incorporated territory. And that's, that's largely because of its, its large white settler population, right. It was seen as kind of responsible enough, to eventually become a state because it did have this white, you know, American settler population, unlike, say, um, the Philippines or Puerto Rico or Guam. So Hawaii, Hawaii gets put on the tenure track, basically. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But okay. a very long tenure track. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Sarah, around the same time, I always forget that when this was, but there was also discussions about like annexing areas of Central America and, and other parts of, uh, of the, um, Latin American space. And, and, and it's people choose not to do that. Americans choose not to do that precisely. I think mostly for racial reasons, mm -hmm. but Hawaii, which has this large settler population going back almost a century by the early 20th century is considered to be like the tutelage will be uh, a less, uh, you know, uh, less, less difficult thing to accomplish. Right. Yeah. I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, I think also, you know, like, you know, the, I think the U S government sees Hawaii in very strategic terms in terms of again, yeah, right. Hawaii as gateway to Asia, um, in a way that perhaps it doesn't view 
various parts of Latin America and quite yeah, Nicaragua. Same way. Yeah, in yeah. the same way. So what is what does Hawaii do um, until Pearl Harbor? Like, what's going on? What is the American relationship there? And I, I want to talk for a second, in particular. You could run through that quickly. Like, it's really interesting that the Japanese attack, the the, the space that becomes you know the the important one is not the Philippines, which is you know a, an official American colony, um, but Hawaii and the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, like, what what role does Hawaii play in the American imagination in that first half of the 20th century, rather the first four decades? So, you mean in the sense that, of course, the Philippines is also attacked, but hardly anyone yeah, knows about it. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Guam is also attacked, right, but right, hardly, right. you know, yeah. they don't say the attack on Guam. Yeah. We say the attack on Pearl Harbor. Right. So, like, why that specifically? Obviously, because they got so much of the fleet on, uh, mm-hmm. but I think it must be more than that. Yeah, no, and that's certainly right. Something that Daniel Emmerbar talks about in his book is the ways in which, um, you know, again, right, the Japanese attack on the U.S. Uh, in December 1941 is known as Pearl Harbor, even though, you know, Pearl Harbor was only one, um, you know, one element of that attack. Uh, so, okay, so after 1898, Hawaii is annexed. Um, and, you know, by this point, Hawaii has a large uh, Asian laborer population. Um, so, so the, um, plantation owners first brought over, uh, Chinese workers after annexation, when the, the Chinese exclusion act, uh, became law in Hawaii, um, began importing laborers from Japan. You also have, which is 1881. The Chinese exclusion act is 1881, right? Did I say 1883? Uh, no, oh, no, I yeah. don't think oh, you said the date. I always, I yeah. always, for some reason, I know it's 1881, I always say 1883. No, right, so the Chinese, <laughs> but the Chinese Exclusion Act doesn't apply to Hawaii until, um, you know, until it's annexed uh, by the United States. So then uh, plantation owners begin importing Japanese laborers to the islands. Um, so by World War II, Hawaii has a ma- actually majority Asian population, right? And And of course, this is, this is also because of um, Western diseases brought to the islands um, that, you know, decimate the natives, the indigenous population in Hawaii. Um, and again, right, it, it has a white settler population, but it's not, it's not huge. Um, it's not equivalent to uh, the kind of, you know, settler colonialism in North America. And so, you know, during this period, you know, Hawaii is, you know, it's not called a colony by the United States, but in, in every way it is a colony. They they have their own, you know, local government, um, but they can't elect their own governor. Um, you know, they can't, they don't have, they have a non-voting representative in Congress. Um, you know, and this is fine with the, you know, kind of white elites in Hawaii up until um, the Sugar Act of 1934, um, which imposes limits on the amount of sugar that Hawaii can export to the mainland United States. Right. And then suddenly, um, why is that act passed? Like what, what are they doing? What's the reason for that? Uh, you know, I mean the sugar interests within North America. Okay. Are, sugar interests in yeah, North yeah, America. Yeah, I just want to yeah, basically yeah. impose a uh, right. cost. You know, and of course, I mean, this is an example of like a way in which, you know, Hawaii's status as a colony, you know, kind of differentiates it from the rest of the United States. Right. Because, you wouldn't be able to kind of, you know, Louisiana. Just right, right, that. right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but so that kind of gets everyone, that gets everyone all riled up in Hawaii, right? You know, that's suddenly, um, 
the, you know, white plantation elites in Hawaii are saying like, well, this isn't fair, right? We should be able to have, um, we should be able to have a vote in Congress, right? We should be able to, we should be able to have a say in, you know, federal policy, right? If this is the kind of federal policy that affects us. Um, so you have a kind of initial campaign for statehood in the 1930s. Um, and, you know, of course you have all of these, uh, congressmen coming over to Hawaii and all these junkets, right. To do all of these, you know, interviews, right. With, with the local populations. Um, and, you know, they find that Hawaii is not ready for statehood because of its large Japanese, you know, and Japanese American population. Right. So that, and then of course, with the beginning of World War II, you know, that the statehood campaign gets put on ice. Um, and that brings us to, to Pearl Harbor. So, um, is Pearl Harbor a crucial moment in essentially incorporating Hawaii into the American imagination as a place that's quote unquote ours? I think so. I mean, you know, this is, this is a question I've gotten a lot of, you know, um, in terms of, you know, how much of a difference that makes when it comes to statehood. And the truth is, yes, I think, you know, it does kind of alert the rest of the United States some people, you know, to the idea that Hawaii is part of the U.S. Although, you know, there continues to be a lot of misunderstanding, you know, into the, you know, 40s and 50s about whether Hawaii is part of the United States. So, you know, and you don't, I mean, in terms of the arguments for statehood that you see after World War II, there's a lot less reference to Pearl Harbor than one might think. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it certainly does, I think, put Hawaii on the map to some extent for, for a lot of continental Americans, you know, but there's also in this period, you know, there's, there's all kinds of exports from Hawaii, you know, to, to, um, you know, mainland North America, uh, in this period as well, that I think kind of Hawaii is already sort of part of us popular culture before Pearl Harbor, right. In the form of Hawaiian music, you know, there are a lot of, there are a number of movies that are set in Hawaii. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I think Americans knew about Hawaii and, 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 some of them maybe knew about its kind of, you know, legal status vis-a-vis the rest of the United States. Um, you also have, you know, you do have a military presence there. Um, that military presence becomes much, 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 much bigger um, with World War II and the Korean War. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Pearl Harbor certainly kind of alerts a lot of Americans to Hawaii's um, place within the U.S., but that was also something, you know, that I don't think you see in a kind of equivalent, like, Filipino culture becoming part of kind of U.S. popular culture in the same way as Hawaii, right, or Puerto Rican culture, um, you know, or, or a kind of imagined, right, this is all very sort of, this is the kind of culture that, that uh, you know, the cultural formation of Hawaii within broader U.S. culture, right, is not necessarily one produced by people in Hawaii themselves, of course. Um, but yeah, sort of, it is part of kind of the U.S. cultural imagination in a way that these other colonies are really not. Can we uh, talk about that for a second? Like, what does Hawaii represent? Are, are people eating sort of like pickled pig, uh, pineapple? Do they have the luau? Do they have, you know, aloha, aloha? Hey, that's what I remember from like yeah. early Looney Tunes cartoons. Um, so like, what is the, um, 
what is the role that Hawaii actually plays in the American uh, imagination? What do people think is there? Is it sort of like an Edenic paradise, I imagine? Could you maybe talk about that for a sec? And how does that play into the campaign for statehood that your book uh, focuses on? Yeah, I mean, all, all of those things. I mean, Hawaii is seen as, you know, a kind of exotic but safe vacation destination, um, you know, pineapple, more so than sugar, um, you know, even though, pi- you know, pineapple production in Hawaii, um, you know, is much smaller than sugar production, but, you know, all the advertising for, uh, you know, especially this dole pineapple, right, you know, plays on kind of themes of, you know, Hawaii as an exotic place, right? It's very much associated with Hawaii, um, even though pineapple is not native to the Hawaiian islands, um, native to South America. And of course, especially during this period, and I would argue more in this period than after World War II, right? You know, the, the focus is on kind of, you know, indigenous native Hawaiians, particularly Hawaiian women wearing, you know, like the shell bras and the hula skirts, right? And, and you know, there, there are a lot of um, postcards, you know, there, there's, a, there's, there's a kind of vast array of imagery of this kind of like safe, feminized, exotic Hawaii um, that is exported to the U.S., uh, you know, in the interwar period. Um, and that change, you know, I would say that that image of Hawaii changes somewhat uh, after World War II um, and takes on kind of a new valence in the context of Hawaii statehood. So let's talk about that. Let's go to this is this is what your book really focuses on the post World War II period. So so what's going on in local Hawaiian politics? What's going on with statehood? How does the American view of Hawaii change after you know becoming essentially the global hegemon? So after World War II, the um, the campaign for statehood uh, is revitalized, and again, you know, you have a kind of coalition of people within Hawaii, um, at first very much driven by white elites in Hawaii, but, you know, increasingly also, uh, you have a lot of Asian Americans in Hawaii who are very supportive of the statehood movement. Um, keep in mind, right, that, um, people born in Asia cannot become naturalized U.S. citizens until 1952, right? So, right, um, right. Non-white people cannot become naturalized citizens right. until 1952, right. I believe. Yeah. yeah. However, right, you have a large, uh, an increasing population of Asian Americans born in Hawaii, right, who have U.S. citizenship, who can vote, who are citizens, who have the full, you know, the officially the full rights of U.S. citizens, um, yeah. except for the fact they live in a colony. Except for the fact they live in a colony, right? Um, right. Whoops. <laughs> that's the only thing. Uh, so, you know, so, so you have, and so you have this generation and you also have during World War II, and this is important to point out, um, you have a lot of Japanese Americans in Hawaii who serve in the military, um, you know, and one, one of the most highly decorated battalions in U.S. history is this Japanese-American battalion from Hawaii. Um, they served in Europe. They were not allowed to serve. That's what I was about Asia. to ask. Yeah. I imagine they didn't serve in the Pacific, yeah, right? Yeah. They would have been they afraid ser- of they fifth columns. Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, there are all kinds of news stories about their heroism. There's a film made about them. So things are changing on the ground locally in Hawaii um, in terms of the demographic and political power of Asian-Americans 
in the islands. They could access power in a way that just wasn't possible when there's, they're not citizens. Yeah, and they could access power in Hawaii in a way that they couldn't in the rest of the United States, right? Again, except for the fact that they're living in this colony that doesn't have, you know, that doesn't have the same, they don't have the same power on the national um, stage as they do within Hawaii itself. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that's going on in Hawaii in 1954. You have um, essentially, you know, the, a, a kind of overturning of the old regime in Hawaii where a kind of coalition of, um, you know, Asian Americans, uh, labor, right, you know, sort of propel the Democratic Party to power within Hawaii. It had been completely controlled by the Republican Party up until then. And again, they're very much in favor of statehood. Native Hawaiians at this point, you know, are really on the fence. A lot of them are around statehood. Some some are in support of statehood because they think it would be better for that, you know, that better than territorial status. Um, a lo- you know, a number of them are also very skeptical that that's going to be of any help to them. Um, is there a nationalist movement of indigenous Hawaiians like there is in Puerto Rico? Or is that not really, ta- does that not really take off in Hawaii? You know, my view of it, is that at this point there really isn't, you know, there's, there's been some scholarship that kind of argues there's, you know, a very kind of quiet, you know, almost underground movement, uh, for sovereignty in this, in this period. But, you know, there really isn't an organized nationalist. Yeah, movement. Not by there you see in a place like Puerto Rico. Yeah, right. It's not equivalent to, to what you see in Puerto Rico. Um, you know, and again, the, the demographics are very different in those two places. Um, and, and the vast majority of, of Asian Americans in Hawaii who are, you know, who, and who constitute the majority of the population there are in favor of statehood. So that's what's going on in the ground, on the ground in Hawaii, uh, in the United States, right? The, the kind of second campaign for Hawaii statehood starts in 1946. Hawaii does not become a state until 1959. So it, it takes a while, right? But basically right after World War II, there is, um, majority support in Congress for Hawaii statehood, both, you know, on kind of like constitutional grounds, right? Like, well, they've met all the constitutional requirements for statehood. They should, you know, there's no reason not that they shouldn't become a state, Um, you know, and increasingly over the course of the 1950s for strategic reasons because of the uh, increasing role of the United States in the Pacific and and in Asia. Um, And the, and the reasoning there is, you know, of course, Hawaii is already a military base, right? So it's, it's not necessarily about kind of um, the geography of Hawaii um, and much more about the image of Hawaii and the image that Hawaii statehood would send to Asia, right? You know, that the U.S. is a racially egalitarian place, right, that believes in self-governance. The U.S. does, you know, nominally support decolonization, right? I mean, it wants decolonization on its own terms, right? But it, you know, it is under fire from the Soviet Union, of course, you know, for U.S. racism, for, you know, the kind of hypocrisy of the U.S. proclaiming itself an anti-imperial power while having all of these colonies, right? So, so Hawaii statehood becomes very important kind of strategically to the United States um, as a way to send a message to Asia about its kind of anti-racist, anti-imperial credentials, but it's held back by essentially Southern Democrats who do not want Hawaii to become a state, both because they're just racist um, and don't want, you know, a majority Asian state to join the union, um, but also because they 
believe that Hawaii will vote, will provide the kind of crucial votes necessary to pass civil rights legislation. Um, so that really, they effectively stall statehood for more than a decade. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the contradictions going on in American liberalism after World War II? Because I think Hawaii is such an important site for that. Uh, because uh, on one hand, you have this sort of like Cold War civil rights argument, which is that this is going to be a place that could be exploited for international propaganda purposes, not only against the Soviet Union, but against, you know, winning hearts and minds in uh, in East Asia. But then again, you have the, the Liberal Party, you know, um, which, I mean, li- both parties at the time had liberal elements, but you see this slow drift towards the Democratic Party becoming the party of liberalism um, and, and Southern congressmen there. So, like, what is the role uh, th- that race plays in the sort of liberal imagination um, after World War II, and how does Hawaii um, fit into that? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, You know, I think so much of the kind of racial discourse or, you know, civil rights discourse, you know, at least among kind of white liberals in this period, focuses on the idea that, you know, race you know, race should not inhibit kind of, you know, individual opportunity, right? Um, that everyone is kind of equal on an individual basis um, and that everyone should be given those, you know, equal opportunities to succeed in the United States, right? So I think, um, so it's a very kind of individualizing rhetoric. Um, and this is also a period where you have uh, the kind of birth of this idea of Asian Americans as the model minority, uh, right, you know, as an example of, uh, you know, the kind of egalitarianism of the American dream or whatever, right, that, you know, uh, you know, if you just have the right kind of, you know, drive and gumption, right, it, it shouldn't matter what your race is, you can succeed um, in the United States. And of course, you know, to some extent, you know, Asian Americans are relatively successful in Hawaii. So they really, um, they're really able to kind of fulfill that very optimistic version of American racial liberalism. Yeah, they prove that yeah. American democracy works. Exactly. Right? right. When when Stalin says it doesn't and when Khrushchev says it doesn't, they could literally point to Hawaii as like, look, like we we allow ethnic minorities and racial right. minorities to succeed. Right. Look at all these Asian Americans in Hawaii, you know, who serve in, you know, local government, who, you know, who own successful businesses, right? Whatever it is, you know, who are highly educated. And that, that fulfills certain sort of domestic demands as well as, you know, it fulfills kind of um, the image of the democracy, you know, American democracy that the U.S. is trying to project to the world, um, you know, and then and at the same time, um, I think what's really tricky about Hawaii, right, is that by making Hawaii a state, the U.S. is essentially admitting that it, you know, has colonies, right, that it's a colonial power, Um which, you know, it, it doesn't, the proponents of Hawaii statehood um, rarely talk about Hawaii as, you know, or, or statehood as a form of decolonization, right? But that's kind of what they mean, right? They talk about it in the context of decolonization, right? This will prove um, that the U.S. Uh, believes in self-government um, to the rest of the world, right? And they also left the Philippines in right, 46, right. I believe, right? 46, so they, there's right. the dual thing, yeah. And it will, you know, it will fulfill the UN mandate, which essentially says the people of a given colony should be able to decide for themselves if they want to stay and, and kind of join the nation on an equal basis or if they want to become their own 
um, independent state, right? So I think it's serving, it's serving multiple purposes at once and certainly tells a very happy story to kind of domestic American audiences as well, right? And especially kind of into the 1960s, Hawaii becomes a place that's considered a kind of racial paradise, right? Where everyone gets along. And that was often contrasted either implicitly or explicitly, right? With kind of mainland race relations, which, you know, as the 1960s go on, right, become more fraught. So, Sarah, I'm curious, um, to what extent were uh, Hawaiians, especially sort of indigenous Hawaiians, aware of the fact that they were being used in this way as the exemplar of the glories of uh, American race relations. And to the extent that, that that filtered into Hawaii, what was the reaction to that given the experience that these communities had, uh, you know, what was the reaction to kind of finding themselves being held up as this uh, model of, of uh, American race relations? Do you mean in, you want specifically indigenous Native Hawaiians? Uh, I mean, to mostly, yeah. My my question is mostly about indigenous. Although I, I, I mean, it certainly applies to uh, to the Asian community in Hawaii as well. But but I think it maybe even hits a little harder with the indigenous community. I, I don't know though. I mean, you tell me. Yeah, I mean, I think you see a lot of resentment against this idea of Hawaii as a racial utopia, you see a lot of that emerging in the late 1960s. I don't, I haven't seen that much of a kind of counter narrative emerging in say the 1950s, um, or at least a kind of vocal or public counter narrative, but certainly in the late 1960s. Um, and I look at, I, I spend a chapter of my book looking at the ethnic studies movement in Hawaii, uh, you know, and, and, and that becomes a real kind of epicenter of pushing back against this narrative that, first of all, the argument is that Hawaii is not a racial utopia. In fact, um, you know, there's still a lot, you know, that Asians in, in Hawaii, first of all, are not all successful, right? There are a lot of poor Asians in Hawaii, um, that there is still white racism against non-white people in Hawaii, you know, and then of course, Native Hawaiians in particular, um, you know, are routinely kind of at the, you know, at the bottom of any sort of health metrics, economic metrics, right? And so that counter narrative really comes out in the late 1960s. And, you know, there's quite a bit of sort of um, inter-ethnic tension around a lot of that as well. Um, and, and some resentment among Native Hawaiians uh, toward Asian Americans in Hawaii, you know, for kind of taking advantage of, you know, or, or seeking to kind of play into um, the the idea of the model minority to their own advantage. So one of the things that's so interesting to me about Hawaii's post-war history is that its central role in the transition of American capitalism from um you know, a labor-based or, or, or capitalist-based structure to something really organized around consumption. Mm -hmm. And tourism is absolutely central to creating the American subject after World War II. And Hawaii, as you show in your book, is absolutely central to that project. 
So could you maybe talk about like tourism in Hawaii? When does it take off? You know, what do people imagine? And, you know, people might remember there's a Mad Men episode, I believe, where they're like hired by the Hawaii State Tourist Board or something along those lines to sort of create this image of, of Hawaii and just, just, that just shows how important it is. So could you maybe talk about for, um, that for a bit, Sarah? Yeah, and it's funny because they're in that, that Mad Men episode, the original ad that John Draper comes up with is like, I think it's like footprints on the sand. I can't remember what the slogan is, but it's something about like the jumping off point or something like that. And I, of course, was like, oh, there it's the jumping off point to Asia. But it turns out everyone thought he was talking about like suicide or something. I don't know. Like in any case, yes, I remember that. I remember that Mad Men episode well, um, or maybe not that well, since I'm not recalling all the details. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, so again, one of the one of the interesting things about uh, tourism to Hawaii in this period is so much of it is, you know, so much of the literature around tourism is focused on Hawaii as, as a place of, you know, interracial amity, right. As a place to experience Asian culture within the United States, you know, um, and one of the things that I found so interesting about the statehood debates was that increasingly over the course of the 1950s, the reasons given for why Hawaii should be, you know, a state fully equal with the rest of the United States, the emphasis really is on Hawaii's Asian-ness. And that, that's, that's very much true in the tourism literature as well. So part of it, of course, is that Hawaii is this beautiful place, right? It's an exotic paradise, but, you know, there's, you can, there are potentially closer places for, for people to visit, especially on the East Coast, um, you know, they can go to the yeah, they Caribbean. can just go to LA yeah, or something. Right. Yeah, the oh right, Caribbean, yeah. or if you want to stay in the United States and experience something different, come to beautiful Southern California. Right, right. You know, um, and so, so yeah, so a lot of the emphasis in the tourism literature in the '60s and '70s is on you know Hawaii as this kind of you know as an interracial paradise, as a as a kind of mini Asia within the United States. Um, you know, and I think it's it's also it's about creating a kind of cosmopolitan subject, right? You know, and, and, and that's, that's very important, um, in a cold war context as well, right? You know, that, uh, you know, that Americans should show a kind of tolerant, you know, racially tolerant, racially enlightened, um, face to the world, right? And that, um, you know, this is, you know, beginning under Eisenhower, tourists are seen as kind of unofficial ambassadors for the United States, um, and so, you know, Hawaii, of course, they're not, they're not leaving the United States. Um, but I think it's a way, you know, tourism to Hawaii is a way to sort of, you know, fulfill this goal of cosmopolitan, um, subjecthood, you know, in the context of the Cold War, right? To kind of prove one's, you know, racial enlightenment, right? By, by visiting Hawaii and eating all of this weird Asian food, um, and participating in these Asian cultural events. Um, so, and so they don't stress indigeneity, right? That, that, that's really crucial. I, yeah. I mean, or do they, is it like a blend? It's a blend, but I think especially, you know, in contrast to say the interwar period, a lot of the emphasis on tourism to Hawaii in the post-war period and especially the post statehood period in the sixties and seventies really is on Hawaii's Asian-ness, right? You know, why that erasure of indigenous uh, I don't know if I'd go so culture. far as to say it's an erasure because I mean, yeah, you know, or downplaying, yeah, let's downplaying. say that's too strong. Um, I think again, it has, to, you know, it has to kind of be seen in the context of the cold war and decolonization, all the discourse around 
statehood in the 50s and 60s, right, which is about the role that Hawaii plays, you know, as, you know, or that statehood plays as a kind of, you know, symbol of American democracy and anti-racism. Um, you know, and the, the other big difference between uh, kind of post-statehood tourism and earlier periods is that it becomes much more affordable, right? So, and and part of that's because of the advent of jet travel to Hawaii, which begins in 1959, the same year as statehood. Um, you know, previously, if you wanted to go, it's really far away. So, you know, if you wanted to go to Hawaii, you'd have to go, you know, by uh, by ship, um, and then be able to spend many weeks there. To you know, it would take it would take several days to get there, and then you would spend so you know. So it it was it was much less of um, a kind of luxury vacation in the post statehood period than it had been previously, right? So it becomes more accessible to a kind of larger number of middle class, upper middle class Americans. Uh, so one thing that we haven't talked about, but I know is absolutely central, is is multiculturalism. So uh, we talked a little bit about you know the, this racial imagination, but could you maybe explain like what multiculturalism? Um, is and particularly the story you tell about ethnic studies because I think that's been a, a really hot topic recently. I know Jay uh, Kang just wrote a book about Asian America that really discusses ethnic studies and it's it's come under historical in- investigation. So could you maybe explain like what ethnic study is, ethnic studies is, what liberal multiculturalism is, how they relate to each other, and what role Hawaii played in both of those stories? Sure. So. Um I mean, I'm defining multiculturalism as essentially, you know, the kind of celebration of racial and ethnic difference, um, as opposed to a kind of more assimilationist view of, um, you know, within American racial liberalism. Um, Yeah, I think the way to think about it for people, it's like America not as a melting pot, but as a salad bowl, I believe is the the metaphor that's used. Which, you know, is sort of cliche, but but I think actually, you know, is is helpful for thinking about it. It's true. Yeah, Yeah. it is. I think it is too, yeah. Um, And so, you know, and I think one of the things that did surprise me in doing research for my book was, was how much, even in the 1950s, there was an emphasis on Hawaii's racial difference as an asset to the, you know, strategically, you know, to the United States. Um, and so, you know, and specifically how, you know, Asian Americans, their racial and ethnic difference is seen as an asset to the United States in the context of the Cold War and decolonization. Um, and so, you know, in many ways, I think Hawaii is, both physically the place where a lot of the kind of discourse around multiculturalism is formed, you know, a lot of the institutional practices around multiculturalism are formed there as well, right? But also as this kind of, uh, you know, place where those ideas are projected onto from the rest of the U.S. Um, so shortly after statehood, you have uh, the founding of the East-West Center at the University of Hawaii, um, which is where Obama's mother worked there. Am Obama's I remembering correctly? Got her, I think, got her PhD there. Yeah, I don't think she's a PhD. I think she's an PhD? MA. An MA. Okay. Yeah, I don't think she MA. ever finished the PhD. Okay. I may, she, I may be misremembering. No, you, Shada, you're probably Shada right. has written but about I think this. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, she was there it for was a while. at the East West Center. Yeah, at the East West yeah. Center. Um, and and that you know it was at the University of Hawaii, not through the East West Center. You know, but that's you know, Obama's father came to the University of Hawaii to study, um, and that's how his parents met. Um, but, yeah, so the East-West Center is found, it's very explicitly, you know, a place where, for the 
you know, cultural exchange, right? Um, and that, you know, they talk about, we don't want this, you know, center to be a place where we, um, you know, essentially uh, emphasize the bland assimilation of differences, right? But how differences can be put to mutual good, right? And it's a place of mutual understanding. That's another big term there. Um, they're very into. Um, so, you know, and of course, you know, and I see this as a sort of early iteration of multiculturalist rhetoric and institutional practice, right? You know, and, and but, you know, it's very much in the service of American power in Asia, right? I mean, that that is, it is, it's a State Department funded initiative. Um, you know, the goal is, you know, a lot of the, the kind of um, education that people from Asia receive, you know, are, are in, you know, it's about, it's like agricultural, you know, technology and stuff. Right. Um, so development. Yeah. yeah right. I mean, it, it's part of the kind of U S modernization project in Asia. Right. And it's about, you know, ensuring that, um, you know, these new nations in Asia kind of develop along capitalist, um, anti-communist lines, right. And remain aligned with the United States. Um, right. But does Hawaii present itself as a model? Like could someone from Taiwan say, I'm going to follow the Hawaiian model in theory, or is it just literally a place or does Hawaii become like a space in the international developmentalist imagination? A model of modernization? Yeah. A model of like, we did it here. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, yeah, especially, I mean, and I, I, I don't know that much about this, but you know, there's a, a lot of stuff around like tropical agriculture, you know, that, right. um, and kind of, yeah, like how to grow the sweetest pineapple or I don't, you know, like there's th that, that stuff is definitely, um, emphasized at the East West center in terms of the coursework, in terms of the kind of like discourse around the East West center, right. It's much more about cultural exchange, right. Than it is like, yeah, you know, new agricultural methods or whatever. So the East West center established in the early 1960s, um, once the Peace Corps is established, um, the Hawaii becomes the largest training site for Peace Corps volunteers going to Asia, um, you know, and, and, it, and it's selected for that because of Hawaii's large Asian population, right? And there's this idea that, you know, um, these trainees can come to Hawaii and like, you know, just be like dropped off randomly on the side of the road and find some like Filipino community to take them in, you know, and this is on the big island, you know, that that will replicate their experience once they're Peace Corps volunteers in Asia. Um, you know, and in both cases with the Peace Corps and the East West Center, right, the fact that it's in Hawaii, the fact that it's situated, you know, between the U.S. and Asia geographically and kind of between the U.S. and Asia culturally, um, you know, is, is kind of central to their, their missions. Um, you know, also Hawaii becomes a place using the kind of methods developed at the East West Center and the Peace Corps for kind of cultural competency training for, um, USAID workers going to Vietnam. So again, these kind of cultural sensitivity programs, programs of, you know, supposed, Mutual understanding and exchange are all developed within the context of, you know, U.S. foreign policy um, and imperialism, and imperialism uh, toward Asia. So I just want to end on two questions. Uh, I think one, it's ethnic I, studies, I, though, by the way. That, ethnic, oh, yeah, yeah. No, so no. Yeah. So um, let's do ethnic studies. Sarah, yeah, yeah. Do ethnic so, studies, I mean, yeah. and then and other people might disagree with this. Right. But I sort of see ethnic study. You know, I think a lot of people see ethnic studies as the sort of um, origin point of 
multiculturalism that's then sort of corrupted by this more liberal multiculturalism that's all about the celebration of difference without actually examining the kind of structural or kind of power dynamics inherent to, um, you know, socially constructed racial ethnic difference. But, you know, it seems to me, you know, if we look at Hawaii, right, that ethnic studies, for example, is very much a kind of reaction against liberal multiculturalism, which had really already emerged in the 50s and 60s, and seeks to similarly has an emphasis, obviously, on racial and ethnic difference, right, but within the context of ethnic studies, using that sort of reclamation of one's um, ethnic heritage as a kind of form of power in itself, right, or as a kind of platform for upending the status quo power dynamics. But yeah, in, in, in the context of white, that to me seems to be come after the sort of emergence of liberal multicultural, you know, Cold War liberal multiculturalism that you see in the East West Center and the Peace Corps. And I think this leads directly to the question I want to ask, which is about Barack Obama. And how do you see Obama as, as um, you know, not a function of Hawaii, but someone who is deeply shaped by it, who spent so much of his time there? And does he embody the contradictions and tensions of Hawaii at all? Do you see anything about being born? Um, I'm not sure if he was born there per se, but spending so much of his early life there as being embodied in his career. How is Obama, you know, someone who is uniquely from Hawaii, sort of the periphery, in a sense, of, of the American empire? Yeah, I mean, first of all, he was definitely born there because that's the whole birther movement, you know. Oh, I wasn't sure if he was born in like Kansas. Or no, no, he was, he was born, no, because I think part, you know, part of the sort of hints at illegitimacy of his like birth records, right. I think. Come from the fact, that, the he fact that he was born in Hawaii. In Hawaii. Yeah. Um, you know, and that like they didn't keep as good records or something as the rest of the United States. Oh, really? I, that's interesting. I think that's yes, one of so the claims. Particularities. Yeah, you know, and, and oh, like wow. the poor, you know, the poor people at the Hawaiian, the Hawaii State Archives had to deal with all of these requests for like Obama's birth record. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ. So yeah, so he was definitely born there. Um, and it's so hard to talk about Obama in Hawaii because he is, I don't want to say unique, right? But he's a kind of exceptional case, right? I mean, there's a very, very small uh, African American population in Hawaii. I mean, to this day, um, and certainly then when he was born um, in the early 60s. And, you know, at the same time, though, I think, it, you know, the, the, the sort of celebration of Hawaii as a racial utopia is founded in some element of truth when you compare Hawaii to the rest of the United States in this period, right? I mean, it never had any miscegenation laws, right? I mean, it, you know, it, there, there was a lot of intermarriage, you know, among, you know, among different, you know, people of Asian descent, um, you know, Native Hawaiian, white, right? You know, there was a kind of history of, um, you know, and it was studied by social scientists in the interwar period, right? There really, there really was a long history of um, interracial uh, relationships in Hawaii that I think made uh, Obama's parents' marriage and, you know, his existence as a biracial child unexceptional in the context of Hawaii, even though the fact that he was black made him somewhat exceptional. And so, you know, I think in that sense, right, you know, thinking about, I don't know, I mean, uh, of course, you know, then Obama comes to Chicago and kind of has to like relearn, you know, or learn a new 
domestic mainland racial codes in a way, right, and kind of learn how to be like a Black American politician in the context of Chicago, which is very, very different than being Black in Hawaii. Yeah, extremely right? different, yeah. Um, so I think he really, in a way, you know, I think, you know, in his in his memoir, he talks about his upbringing in Hawaii, but I also think he does a lot to really downplay it later in his career, you know. I mean, at least when he's kind of trying to find his footing in Black Chicago, I think he really downplays his upbringing in Hawaii. But in some sense, it made him possible, you know, to imagine this sort of I racial so. utopic yeah. space. Not that he he necessarily does it in utopian terms, but to identify sort of his career with the success of his nation is, I think, in part made possible by the, exactly what you're talking about. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to draw a really direct line. But yeah, I think, you know, the way that he talked about race um, when he was running for president, you know, it seems to me was very much informed by his childhood and the fact that he did have this somewhat, you know, exceptional upbringing, you know, he went to this like fancy private school in Hawaii, you know, I mean, he had, he had a relatively privileged upbringing, you know, compared to, you know, compared to a lot of black politicians in Chicago, say, um, that I think certainly shaped the way he talked about race. Oh, absolutely. How could it not? you know, when he was so young. So I want to end on this question. Well, it might be very short, depending on what your answer is. Did you see The White Lotus? I did. I have not. So what do you think? I haven't watched the last episode yet, though. I don't know why. Uh, Um, No, that's fine. So what do you think about how Hawaii was represented in that show? Because it became, I I think, a topic of conversation. And Mike White, the uh, writer, um, what has like uh, I think he might own a home in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and he said how Hawaii like represents something like beautiful to him. But that show obviously has a lot of indigenous politics elements to it, and even some racial politics, um, even though they seem more mainland. So, what was your take about how Hawaii was represented in this like very significant cultural product that just came out? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I know there's been some criticism of the show for focusing on kind of you know white tourist perspective. Um, it seems to me, I mean, it's, a, it's certainly, it's not a, it's not a, a kind of positive um, portrayal of white tourists in Hawaii. You know, I think it, I think it, I think it does effectively criticize um, white tourism in Hawaii, you know, and it, it speaks to, I think this, this much longer history of, yeah, the way in which Hawaii is framed as a place where you can kind of become a new person or something, right? Ultimately, they- Or become yourself, become yourself your fullest version right, of right, yourself. Right, become the fullest yeah. version of yourself somehow through interaction with, you know, Hawaii, the people of Hawaii. Um, you know, the, I mean, the show takes, you know, one thing I'll say is, I mean, the show takes place in Maui, which is, so, you know, different than, you know, I think a different kind of tourist experience than if you go to like, White, you know, Honolulu and Waikiki. Um, but I think- it speaks to this way in which there's a, there's a very long history of white people coming to Hawaii in order to kind of, you know, as a place of escape and also as a place of self-actualization, you know, while be, you know, essentially, you know, that, that's supposed to happen through contact with non-white people in Hawaii who of course are also serving them. Right. So I, yeah, but I, I don't know why I still have not seen the last episode. Just, you you got to see it. I know. I should just finish. I should have. I should have watched it last night before doing this podcast. It's okay. Uh, we'll do White Lotus season two with you. We'll do it. Okay. We'll do a recap. Uh, right, well, Sarah, no spoilers. thank you. People listening to this, do not spoil the ending for Sarah. No, please, please don't. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. <laughs> uh, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sarah.